You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. And good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. You're listening to the Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM. Also on 101.7 Columbia Talk in Columbia, South Carolina. You can find our archives on Spotify, Podbean, TuneIn, Stitcher, CastBox, Player FM, iHeartRadio, Podcast Player, Google Podcast. And also, you can find us on Paranormal.talk. Live stream and also triple w late night in the midlands.com. Chip, are you there, buddy? I sure am, Tim. Boy, you're getting around, man. <laughs> you're getting around more than I, I could possibly do on my street corner, you know. I mean, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that, but that's for another day, you know. Yep. And it has to be because, you know, Beautiful. boy, what a guest you have found for us today, brother. Thank you. God bless you for that. This is the magic of Tim Roxbury, ladies and gentlemen, because we have a phenomenal guest. And I, I'm in fangirl mode today, you know, because this guy has been a hero of mine for a long, long time. And this is the first time I've ever had a chance to meet him. See, again, the magic of Tim Roxbury. But our honored guest today is none other than Dean Raiden with us. And, and that's like the biggest wow factor ever. Uh, Dean Raiden, PhD, is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, associated distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Uh, before joining research staff at IONS in 2001, Dean Radin held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, uh, University of Edinburgh, right? he's talking about the guy who gets around, and SRI International. He's given over 500 talks and interviews, seen most of them. He's author and co-author of hundreds of technical and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, four popular books, The Conscious Universe from 1997, Entangled Minds from 2006, Supernormal, was awesome, 2013, and Real Magic, uh, just recently, uh, 2018. These books are all in print together. They have sold over 120,000 copies, and they've been, well, way more than that, actually, and they've been translated into 14 languages so far, including Chip Speak, you know, and that's why I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to you, Tim, but wow, Dean Radin, our honored guest today. Awesome. Yeah, he's, he's the perfect guest for the for this show and the uh, multiple uh, topics we talk about here, including uh, consciousness, near-death experiences, and uh, quantum physics. And we, we, we cover it all here. Well, yes, we do. Yes, we do. So we should welcome the, the phenomenal Dean Radin to Supernatural Realm. Hello, Dean. Welcome Hello. to the show. <laughs> Thanks. Glad to be here. Oh, it's awesome to have you, you know. 
This is like if my wife met George Clooney, you know, it's along the same lines or, or, or people from the housewives or whatever, you know, I can't watch those shows, but that's for another day. Yeah. <laughs> Timmy, I'm right. throwing it to you, buddy. Yeah. It's great to have you, Dean. And uh, I guess our first question is, um, when did you get started in um, quantum physics and a study of, of consciousness? Well, those are two completely different topics. Uh, they <laughs> might be related. <laughs> yeah, they, they might be related. I got yeah. studied, uh, interested in consciousness uh, probably uh, about a minute after I was born. Wow. <laughs> I guess that makes sense, huh? I mean, that is... That's the best answer we've ever gotten. <laughs> it's, it's the process of, uh, of being aware. Right, consciousness is about awareness, both at the conscious level and deeper levels. Uh, as a topic of interest, I, I think it was probably some sometime in college, maybe graduate school, where I realized that consciousness was a thing that could be studied, and more importantly than that, uh, without consciousness, you would know literally nothing. <laughs> So you can flip flip that and say that with consciousness, that is the only way that any of us will ever know anything mm -hmm. through our own experience. And among other things, what that means is that everything else other than your own awareness is an inference. So how do you know the world? Well, you know it through your experience. Uh, most of what we know from a intellectual or academic perspective is by taking the word of authorities. Because you can't know everything, so you read books and so on, and you have to make your, your own judgment as to whether you believe what you find in the books, but uh, the only thing that we know for sure is our own awareness. And once I started thinking of it, of it in those terms, uh, I figured, well, what could be more interesting than that? So that's, that's as I said, sometime around college or so that I wow. started thinking about that. Uh, but the second part of this question is about quantum physics. Well, I was in an engineering curriculum and we studied that as like physics 101. They teach quantum mechanics now. Uh, the question that you may be coming up with, if I use a little bit of precognition, is, well, how did I turn all of that into a study of psychic phenomena? Right. Was... <laughs> well, so that uh, probably started when I was about a kid, a preteen kid. Wow as a result of uh, reading way too much science fiction and fairy tales and uh, the equivalent of Harry Potter, although that came out uh, much later than when I was a kid, and simply being curious about it. I mean, we, we all like these tales and they're very popular in movies and so on, uh, but I just wondered, could any of that possibly be real? And that, that curiosity is what sparked my interest in trying to understand uh, how would we tell if these stories were real or not. And obviously a lot of stories are elaborations of reality. And I kind of suspected even as a kid that if some of the, if we were reading tales that were pure fantasy, that were way beyond anything that was even imaginable, then it, it wouldn't grab people so much. But the stories do grab people. And so the reason why that happens is because uh, as readers, we either resonate with the story, whether it happens to be whatever it happens to be, and we have to resonate at least a little bit 
So that also got me wondering, well, why do we resonate with stories about about psychic phenomena, about paranormal incidents in general? And so that started when I was probably 10 or 12. Wow. Do you think you think our psyche has plays a part in our supernatural experiences? You think they're well, connected? Clearly. Yeah, I mean, our, our, our everything that you think about in terms of, of mind, like mind with a capital M, is psychological, uh, is, some of it is biological, uh, it's what we have learned, what our expectations are, so there's a huge rash of psychological reasons. Uh, I'm not sure that, that what you meant by psyche, mm-hmm. I mean, psyche in its original term is roughly equated with soul. It's like some uh, personal, uh, uh, eternal self inside there somewhere. Right. Uh, I don't know if there is such a thing, but it's at least within a psychological sense, absolutely. But how we interpret and how we experience things that are out of the ordinary are always filtered through our psychological state. And do you, do you believe that the paranormal can be explained through quantum physics or connected uh, to it? No, what I the way I, I put it is that uh, up until about 1900, the best physical explanation of the world was Newtonian mechanics, mm-hmm. what we, today we call it classical mechanics or classical physics. From that perspective, a lot of what is thought to be paranormal was literally impossible. It was thought to violate physical laws. <laughs> Well, over the course of the 20th century, our understanding of the physical world changed radically, both with relativity and quantum mechanics. And so now, it is, at least for psychic phenomena, the, the strange thing about it is that it involves perception and action that somehow transcends space and time. Okay. Well, that would have been considered impossible mm-hmm. in, in 1900, but, but no longer, because there are all kinds of things that we know today that transcend space and time, you know that space and time are flexible, they're a relationship rather than absolutes. So for anybody today to say that psychic phenomena, I'm not going to cover the entire paranormal because it's too big, but at least for psychic phenomena, uh, there is nothing that that uh, would lead one someone to correctly state that these violate physical law, because they don't. The physical world can support these kinds of phenomena. What's missing at this point is how do you connect what we know about reality from a physics perspective into the human organism? We, we don't know how that works yet, but eventually I think we will. Chip? Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you, and I think we got some lawn work going on in the background. Yeah, uh, he's right I under some the, of that too. You know, he's right I under the know window. We're on the air. Well, you yeah. know, it, it, stuff happens. You know, it's radio. It's the magic of it. Yeah. I'm gonna. I, I've got one inquiring minds want to know question, but first I've got uh, something I've been dying to ask you for a long time because you mentioned consciousness a while ago. You know, pretty much from birth. You know, great answer. But as as uh, do you do you have any um, and then might call for speculation, but but any theories on uh, consciousness as an energy form? You know, I I know you know Dr. Rudy Shield, who's talking about kind of this uh, sub wave, if you will, 
You know, it's something that, or Claude Swanson, who uh, thinks of it in, in terms of maybe like orgone energy or something that has kind of a spin. It's a force. It's not a matter per se or a, a particle of matter, but something, some kind of quiet force that can manipulate that matter. But again, they would it would be considered like this kind of some string kind of energy that would be hard for us to find with our current, uh, the way our current physics and understanding of physics goes. Do you have any uh, personal uh, a theory, hypothesis about consciousness as an energy form? And uh, even if not, are you on board with something like that? Like these, these theories that are out there? Uh, I'm not a theorist. Okay. I, I'm an empiricist. That's true. <laughs> and. I, I, my my temperament is such that uh, somebody will report an experience of some type or offer a theoretical explanation. My first inclination is to try to figure out a way of testing it. And so one of the reasons, one of the problems I have with theories is that oftentimes theories are, don't have a testable quality to them. And, and as long as you can't test a theory, it remains a story. So. I, I understand there are lots of theories about what consciousness is and what it might be and all that. And I, in a, in a sense, I can't avoid thinking about it in some way. Mm -hmm. So the way that I think about it is more from a philosophical perspective okay. rather than, than a, a specific testable theory. All right. They do, you know, that, now that's an answer. And I do, I do love that answer because, yeah, you do put things to the test. Uh, so, but you, you have studied uh, certain instances of paranormal and psychic phenomena, or at least, you know, maybe hook people up so you can see what parts of the brain might be uh, receptive to these type of things. So yeah. I'm going to ask you along the lines of, uh, because, you know, some of the research that I've seen talking about uh, the right brain and left brain, where the left brain is more logic and the right brain is more creative or spiritual, if you will. Um, is there any correlation between uh, some psychic or paranormal phenomenon that you have in an experimental setting, especially if you're looking at uh, parts of the brain that might be responding to these things and find any correlation between it's more right brain than left brain when those types of things happen? Or is that an unfair question? No, that's a fair question. Although, again, I would separate psychic experience from the paranormal. Okay. It, uh, psychic probably fits under the umbrella of the paranormal. Mm -hmm. but the paranormal covers such a huge ground that it doesn't even make sense to me to talk about the two in the same breath. Right. Because in so, one thing you're talking about a non-local event that's occurring in local experience with right. the paranormal. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Well, no, with psychic. Psychic experience is that. But the paranormal would include Bigfoot. And, okay. and so we can't put Bigfoot in the laboratory until we capture one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, i got to find one too, man. I've been looking for those guys. And, and in fact, a lot of what's termed the paranormal are either spontaneous experiences or sightings like a UFO, uh, which are interesting and eventually maybe we'll learn something about it. But I, I gravitate more towards things that we can bring into the laboratory and test under controlled conditions. Because unless you can do that, you don't really have high confidence in that, that you understand what actually happened. Yeah. And in addition, you, you almost never get away from the idea of the science as butterfly collecting. <laughs> you see, you, get, you can collect a lot of weird looking butterflies 
and eventually come up with some sort of theory about them, and that's how a lot of science begins. But we've gone beyond that with, with psychic phenomena. We actually can take people into the lab and start learning something about how it works. So you asked about, uh, uh, about the brain and psychic phenomena. We know a little bit about it. I mean, we've, we've done, we and colleagues around the world have, have taken EEGs and functional MRIs of people doing various kinds of psychic tasks. And when we see that there is a correlation, a small correlation, uh, as far as the right versus left brain idea, it's, it's not that we're literally split. I mean, there are two hemispheres. And psychic phenomena tend to be more associated with right-brained kind of, of ideas. But it's not all in the right brain. It's not all in that hemisphere. It's, mm -hmm. it's distributed around the head. Uh, so when you ask somebody, even a really good psychic, to give you information, it tends to be uh, about form and function uh, and color and things of that sort, okay. uh, but not analytical information yeah. and not information about uh, words or numbers. Now, there are exceptions. There are a couple of really amazing ex exceptions where people would get something like a word or, or, or mathematical something or other. Mm -hmm. But that's quite rare. It's much more often to get a, a, uh, a sensory impression of something okay. rather than getting it in an analytical so, sense. So it would light up in, on both hemispheres and in several areas. Would it, would it even be fair to uh, say, well, uh, maybe uh, a good psychic might have more of a temporal lobe type of uh, light up than an occipital or something, or is it just really not even that? It depends on the nature of the task. Okay. So to give you an example, uh, colleagues of mine at uh, in Seattle did a, an experiment where it was a telepathy experiment. Okay. So, so they had put one person in a functional MRI and put the other person who was would be the sender in the experiment at a distant, isolated room. And what they exposed to the sender was simply a checkerboard pattern of lights that would either flash or remain static. Okay. So if you look in the occipital lobe of the brain while you're viewing a flickering checkerboard pattern, there's a lot of activity going on. Mm -hmm. If you look at a static checkerboard pattern, there's almost nothing. It very quickly becomes static and there's no activity there. Right. Because your brain needs dynamic change in order to pay attention. Yeah. So, Especially in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that's true. This is why in television, the scenes switch like every four or five seconds. Right, yeah, all that quick editing now. Yeah. yeah. So, and actually, you can see this really carefully. You can see it clearly now by looking at a film made in the 1950s. <laughs> right. You know? And so the scenes were much, much longer. And mm -hmm. from our perspective today, we're so used to fast switching that it's just incredibly boring. Right. <laughs> We, yeah, it we really started that in the 90s. You know, I was back in the editing at that time, and I was really against it, you know. That's too quick. That's too quick. Old school, you know. Well, we've become used to it. Yeah, we have. <laughs> so in that experiment, the two people are asked to keep each other in mind. So it's a telepathy experiment. Mm -hmm. And what's in, what, what the question of interest is, what is happening inside the brain of the receiver while the distant sender is seeing either the flickering checkerboard or the static flickerboard. Uh, so we know that in the sender, their occipital lobe is lighting up. The question is, well, what's happening in the receiver? And the answer is that their occipital lobe is lighting up. Wow. And they're not seeing anything. Right. So 
it, it's almost appears as though for telepathy that the, the re- brain of the receiver is mimicking what's going on in the sender. Wow. So if, if they're hearing something audio or they're having an emotional reaction or, or a visual image, something in the brain of the receiver is mimicking that. Wow. And to Timmy's question, before I turn it back to Timmy and questions, because he asked about some quantum physics and and I, I guess the... The cool thing to say uh, as a blanket statement for a lot of the stuff going on is quantum entanglement. You know, the whole spooky uh, action at a distance and quantum mechanics. Um, Because you're watching this in real time under a laboratory setting and an experimental basis, even whether it's expressed or implied, do you get any sense that there is some sort of entanglement at work between the sender and receiver, or is that just a bunch of hooey? You know, yeah. from your perspective. No, as an analogy, it is definitely an entanglement. Okay. I mean, because we, as I said, if, if somebody's occipital lobe is lighting up and the other person's does too, mm-hmm. and then other portions of the brain will light up and those light up too, it looks very much like, like entanglement. What we can't say at this point is that it's exactly the same as what we see as entanglement in photons. Right. Because that's pretty fragile. <laughs> right. And, well, it sort of is and isn't. It, it is fragile in the sense that in order to to get entangled photons in the lab, which we can do by now, by, by the way, we're doing experiments using entangled photons in an experiment, uh, it requires specialized equipment and specialized measurements and all that in order to prove that it's entangled. Mm. What we don't know is how far can it scale up. Oh. So you can do experiments with uh, gases that are entangled and inside each each container of gas might be a, a trillion atoms. Mm-hmm. So you could you can entangle uh, what's called ensemble entanglement. Mm-hmm. You can you can entangle tr- trillions of atoms. Well, there are more than trillions of atoms in the brain, it's much more than that. Yeah. But the possibility arises that uh, maybe brains can be entangled, maybe everything is entangled all the time anyway. And if that is the case, then uh, it raises an even more difficult question, which is, how come that sender and that receiver showed this relationship, but not everybody else on the planet? Mm-hmm. And so right. a possible answer to that is that uh, everyone's experience is actually influencing everybody else. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the universe, even, right. yeah. except that most of it ends up being noise. Right, because imagine now you have umpteen trillions of sentient creatures out there somewhere, all thinking various things, and your brain is sort of jumping along with it. Well, the vast majority of it would be noise. The thing that is not noise is when you feel emotionally close to somebody, and and I would say this may be something related to the idea of the cocktail party effect. Okay, you're in a cocktail party and there's lots of noise in the room, and across the other side of the room somebody mentions your name. <laughs> and that you can hear right. because because part of your awareness is always scanning for things of interest and when mm-hmm. your your name pops up even though it's very noisy you will hear that it'll yeah. rise to a level of awareness so maybe that's it's something like that going on in telepathy interesting wow Tim? Dean, Dean we have a couple of friends uh, within the paranormal I don't know if you're familiar with them um, <clears throat> David Roundtree and uh, John Tenney they were part of a show called Ghost Stalkers. Mm-hmm. And uh, during an episode that they were filming, 
they were running a test on, um, uh, you know, at, at this location at a residence. And when when she was talking, trying to make communication with whatever was was local in the room, um, you can see on a monitor that there was a a warm a wormhole forming as as the experience was happening. Um, do you think that that's in your work? Is that possible for that to happen? And I like an Einstein Rosenbridge sort of thing opening up when there's communication being being. Uh, it being in place with a spirit or a consciousness inside uh, inside our local space-time? Well, is it possible? Mm -hmm. All kinds of things are possible. Yeah. Is the effect that was recorded actually a wormhole? Don't know. Mm -hmm. So I've done both field investigations and lots of studies in the laboratory, and we've never seen anything that looks like that. So since it runs outside of my observation and, or, and uh, I think all of the observations of my colleagues, I would say that uh, maybe they found something really bizarre, which could be true, but I don't have any way of commenting on it then because it we have no other supporting evidence of it. Uh, as a communication medium, even if there was a, a wormhole that was opened, would that allow communication? Well, we don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's certainly not like speaking communication because presumably inside the wormhole at some point you wouldn't have air, so you can't have, you, you would be, don't have the medium necessary in order to transmit sound, in which case it becomes purely mental. Well, we know that telepathy can work from one side of the earth to the other, and it doesn't appear to, to need a wormhole mm -hmm. to do that. So then I don't know what it is that your, your friends saw. Okay. Chip? Yeah, um, in, in that regard, uh, from what you've seen and, and anything that you could do conducive to a laboratory type of study with regard to uh, uh, someone, uh, paranormal uh, contact, spirit contact, if you will, uh, is, is there anything that your uh, laboratory research or your, uh, all the things that you've seen and experienced and even some of the things that you've uh, been on in paranormal settings uh, that give you any, any indication of what might be causing this or creating this, you know, because we talk theories all the time. Yeah. You know. uh, I, I wish I had a good explanation, but I don't think we do. Yeah. Uh, so we've done studies with mediums, with mediumship experiments and channeling okay. and lots of studies on various kinds of psychic effects. Uh, the vast majority of research, there's like two, two categories of research. One is uh, we're, we're interested in being able to demonstrate that there is an actual effect mm -hmm. uh, under right. conditions that are so controlled that we're highly confident that it's real. So those are relatively straightforward now. More difficult question is about process. Mm. How, do we, how do we understand the process by which something happens? Most of the process-oriented questions are about uh, correlates, like what what kind of personality matters? What what is it? Does it matter if the Earth's geomagnetic field is a certain way, or if the Moon's in a certain position? Those kinds of correlates. So mm -hmm. quite a bit that's been learned from there. When it comes to testing theories, of which there's there's no shortage of theories. Yeah, in no shortage at all. Yeah, uh, that is much more difficult. 
the so correlates it, that you mentioned that you might be able to remark upon, are there any that stand out to you? Well, the the Earth's geomagnetic field is an interesting one. Wow. So when the when the geomagnetic field flux, and I'm talking about the the whole planet, planetary field flux, mm -hmm. is quiet, then psychic phenomena become better. And so wow. during it during a geomagnetic now, storm. By, by quiet, do you mean the solar particles hitting the Earth is uh, like if the sun's in a quiet phase, it's actually in a quiet phase and not hitting us, you know, with the uh, extra particles or solar mass ejections or, you know, coronal well, mass well, ejections? Think of the, uh, the Earth's geomagnetic field, this magnetic field around the Earth, that it's a lot like a bell. So if, it's, if the sun shoots out a coronal mass ejection, it'll hit it and ring the bell. Mm -hmm. So when the, the magnetic field is shaking like crazy, that's a geomagnetic storm. It's during times like that that sometimes the power grid will go down because mm -hmm. it induces lots of current. Sure. So the opposite is also true. Sometimes the sun is very quiet, and so the geomagnetic field is quiet. And so when I say that uh, there's a negative correlation between the geomagnetic field and psychic phenomena, it means that, that psi abilities become a lot better when the, the geomagnetic no field is storm. quiet. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Dean, Boy, that be, I, you know, I would have thought the opposite. Could, yeah, go ahead. When, when that's heightened like that, the geometric field, could that play part in supernatural or paranormal phenomena as well? It, it might. It might. I mean, there, uh, Michael Persinger uh, in Canada was one of the first to suggest the idea that during a stormy mm -hmm. geomagnetic field that it does disrupt the brain a little bit. And so somebody who... Uh, somebody who is susceptible to micro seizures in the temporal lobe could start experiencing all kind of weird stuff mm. because in a sense they're getting like a minor electroconvulsive shock in their brain. Whereas the reason why I think that psychic phenomena gets better during a quiet geomagnetic field is because your nervous system is simply less active. Right. So it becomes more like you you are being meditated by a quiet planet, whereas <laughs> you can imagine trying to do something creative if somebody's standing next to you banging a drum. Well, it's not so easy. So if you're doing something that requires subtle forms of perception, like most DSP, uh, then it's better to not be a noisy geomagnetic day. Yeah, uh, yeah I've... Um we were speculating, and of course, uh, it would require speculation. This is not something you could uh, do in a laboratory setting. <laughs> but I'm going to ask anyway, because it's an interesting theory out of all the theories that we've heard. Um, and, and going into space time, that, you know, if there are warps in space, there are warps in time. And, mm -hmm. and we, you know, uh, now we know about all, all these things with uh, gravitational waves, you know, and, um, uh, still coursing through the planet after, you know, a billion years ago, these two big black holes crashed into each other. Um, but, you know, uh, have a lot of people, uh, even as of late, uh, experiencing what they consider time shifts, you know, not necessarily losing time, but, the, you know, it's like five minutes goes by in one minute and it has nothing to do with attention span. That's why, I mean, when you're fully attentive and you see that, and uh, I preface that only to ask this, and again, it's calls for speculation, but in a paranormal setting, I, a lot of people are, are really starting to think that instead of some spirit stuck in time that you might, your equipment might be somehow communicating with, that maybe they're living people in a time warp, you know, 
that somehow the energy there's some sort of uh, anomaly in the uh, in the energy uh, uh, about when something like that could happen. Kind of like a now, residual haunting, right? Yeah, because we're we're well we're we're talking about the cocktail party effect, and I'm mm. trying to bring in the possibility of some sort of time shift or time warp that we're just happen to be standing in at the yeah. time to tie into something you said with some these theories that I know you haven't done in a lab setting. <laughs> But it, I wanted to ask anyway because that's that's what I do. That's what, <laughs> um, your your thoughts on that, even though it calls for speculation. Uh, well, again, it it does it goes more to the question of is it possible? Is it plausible? Mm -hmm. Well, there certainly are uh, theories about multiple dimensions. I mean, mm -hmm. if string theory and the rest is correct, uh, it physics doesn't work very well with only three dimensions of space and one of time. Yeah. So we, we need something else. Yeah, uh, we the, do. The moment you open the possibility of something else, especially if there are other dimensions of time, if that even makes sense to, to mm -hmm. talk about that. And there are physicists who do think about multiple dimensions of space and time, and by the way, also of consciousness. Right, right. So if, as soon as you open that door, then could there be people living in a parallel time at the same location where we are? Uh, well, why not? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, again, my, my initial, uh, after I hear a, a proposal like that, I say, well, how would how could we figure out if that were actually true? Right, right. And then it gets really tricky. It gets really tricky, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can, I, can I ask you uh, this then, because while well, you've, you've got the uh, you know, PhD in psychology, I was a psychology guy, so it begs the question, you know, what, what kind of psychology you were most involved in that you got your PhD in? You know, I, I was an abnormal guy, you know. And people say that about me all the time. Yeah, <laughs> so, I still say it. Yeah. Kind of accurate. Um, and in that, I wanted to add that you went to Stanford in engineering, where you may have come across uh, William Teller. No, I, I was at was SRI International. Oh, okay. Never right. mind. So then. back in the 70s, SRI meant Stanford Research Institute. Okay. So then, it was part of Stanford University. Did you but, meet Dr. Tiller there when you oh, were there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I knew Bill Tiller. Yeah. So I knew he was a professor emeritus. And he his work was, uh, especially afterwards, about intent, the power of our intent. And actually, That's right. uh, that pretty much believed uh, or proved that, you know, that we our intent can change matter. Um, so I'm leading all of that from psych, uh, psychology, engineering, into my question about the power of our belief and the power of our intent, mm -hmm. you know. And you mentioned that, you know, we are we can be aware of, you know, even though a lot of this stuff is noise, there are things that we're receptive to that we don't realize we're receptive to. Right. Um, and I'm, I guess I, I want to tie it into paranormal by saying there is no curse without a belief in a curse. But belief systems and, and combined with intent can do a lot of things that even we don't realize we're capable of or don't understand we're capable of. Um, in, in all the things that you've come to learn and in all the things that you've experimented with in, in a laboratory setting or researched in a laboratory setting, um, is there anything that uh, has some correlation to the power of our belief as opposed to, you know, things that we can, if faith can move mountains, wouldn't it be us moving the mountains because it's our intent and our belief? Uh, and just to comment on maybe what you've seen about the power of our belief systems in, in your work, or the power of our intent. 
Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that belief modulates psychic ability. There's also a lot of evidence that intention is also modulated by belief. So in my, my most recent book is about magic, about mm-hmm. esoteric magic. And one of the themes that you find in magical practice over millennia is the, the power of belief. You have to believe it. Mm-hmm. So th- this doesn't feel very good from a scientific perspective because the psychology uh, of somebody, of a scientist, is not supposed to influence the world. Right. I mean, this we're supposed to be independent of the world, but in fact, we're not really independent of the world, regardless of what we may think. Uh, and in parapsychology, the role of belief is tested explicitly, starting almost seventy years ago. So the the classic experiment is you you get a very simple psychic test, like a card guessing test. You Zener cards to guess. Uh, you give the same test to everybody in a classroom, but beforehand. You ask all of the students in a classroom to rate their belief about psychic phenomena. Do you believe in psychic phenomena? So they they all take the same test, and then afterwards you separate the data according to their belief. And what you find again and again is that the people who believe in ESP tend to get a positive score. The people who don't believe either get a negative score or they get a null score. score. So that kind of experiment has been done hundreds of times over the last 70 years. And there was a meta-analysis done in 1993, which looked at all of the studies done to date, and it came up with odds against chance of a bazillion to one. Mm. A big, big number. That's, yeah, odds. that's huge. Yeah. Bigger than DNA number. even, yeah. Yeah, so that was, <laughs> so uh, in just a couple of years ago, there was an update of the meta-analysis to see if the effect that had been seen for a couple of decades continued to be seen, all the way up to, almost to the present day, and the answer is yes. So over a period of 70 years, after hundreds of experiments, we have very high confidence that if you believe in in ESP, you tend to get a positive result. And if you don't, you don't. So that suggests that belief is modulating what, not only what you perceive, but what actually is happening out there in the world. So I'll give another example. We did an experiment to, to see first uh, if we asked Buddhist monks, who are kind of our go-to people to to provide blessings. So we asked a couple of Buddhist monks to bless chocolate, pieces of chocolate from a big batch of chocolate. We selected out part of it. The Buddhist monks blessed the chocolate so that anybody who ate that chocolate would have an elevation in their mood. Hmm. So you can measure mood using standardized scales. It's a bunch of questions that basically that you ask and you put it together and you get a, a measurement of mood. And so we recruited uh, first uh, 60 people, some of whom would take, uh, well, all of them would eat the chocolate, but some of them under double blind conditions really did get the chocolate and others did not, got the blessed chocolate. So then the others got just chocolate that wasn't blessed. And they took the mood scales over the course of the week. And then at the end, we broke the blind and tested to see whether or not the, tro- the blessed chocolate made a difference in mood, and the answer is it did. Mm. Wow. So this was a, a placebo-controlled trial because they didn't know what kind of which, chocolate which they Which chocolate got. they were getting, yeah. yeah. Right. So then we replicated that with a uh, group of 200 members of a Buddhist temple in Taiwan. But in, in uh, China, they don't eat that much chocolate, but they drink a lot of tea. 
No. So we used oolong tea as, wow. as the target. We made a big batch of oolong tea and separated it into two bins. And so one bin was blessed by the monks and the other bin was a control. So again, under double blind conditions, we separate them out into lots of little bottles and give a uh, hundred people got the blessed tea and a hundred people got the control tea. They did the same experiment over the course of a week. They drank the tea. And again, we found under placebo controlled conditions that there was a significant elevation in mood for people getting the blessed tea. Wow. However, in this test, we also asked them, what do you believe about what it is that you're drinking? Now, remember, they had no clue, mm -hmm. but they could guess what, <laughs> what it was. So we split the data according to people who believed that they were getting the blessed tea, some of whom did actually get it and some of whom did not. And might have right? had a placebo effect. Well, well, in this case, what we're modulating is the belief factor. Okay. So it, it's true. In this case, for people who believed that they were getting blessed tea, but in fact they were not, mm -hmm. had no effect. No. Oh, no kidding. Wow. wow. Yeah. So the people who got the blessed tea and believed that they were had a gigantic effect. Wow. So Gee. the belief is modulating the effect even with the same blessed tea. Wow. So th this, is, this goes along with magical lore, which says that if you, you do a spell, you do something and you believe in it, it will work. It if will you work. don't believe in it, it won't work. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, uh, I've got a comment to make about that, but I want to make sure that Timmy has a question or, or, or not first. I think I better stock up on some blessed water from the Ukrainian priest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get some chocolate and some tea pretty soon. Um, because your latest book is about magic, you know, I... I recently had a, a guest. We talked about witchcraft, you know, which I, and it's very hard to get somebody to talk about it because real witches won't talk about it. You know, it's like the magician's code. You're not supposed to talk about they that will stuff. Get the right one. Yeah, but but the, the the initial lore about witches as opposed to uh, Merlin, you know, or magicians, or or is is that uh, um, a, a sorcerer? will use props, whereas a witch can, even from a remote distance, you know, combine her intent and her belief, or, or, or his, his, to actually impede upon the free will of someone else. And that's what made them so scary. Yeah, so, because and be what you just described is black magic. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but well, because of course, there are plenty of, of so-called white witches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I, you know, if I were going to be one, that's what I would do. But, you know, I, I was told by the people that I asked, and not just on radio, but in circles, you know, I got to go in certain circles, that if you want to do it well, you have to know all of it, the black, the gray, and the white, in order to be better at doing the white magic. But you still yeah. have to know all of it, especially to know if any is being done upon you. You know, I live in one of those areas where we've got uh, people in covens you know, where the, the black ma uh, magic uh, practitioners um, are just in that place where they will just do it on on white magic practitioners just so they because they can. You know, it's almost yeah. a psychic vampire type of thing. Actually, that that's true. Let me interrupt you for just a second that sure. Albany plus or minus about 100 miles is like which central. You're right. <laughs> it really is. It is. Both historically and even today. It is like the center of the most bizarre stuff happening right. in the United States. Yeah. But, but I mean, just some, um, 
you know, the kind of just negative minded types of uh, practitioners, you know, I'm used to meeting practitioners um, and I'll call them that because it's a respectful word and it doesn't come with any uh, kind of, you know, just to it or mystique that takes away from their work. Right. Um, that are the beautiful thing is that they have this understanding of the elements that mm. a lot of uh, r- normal people <laughs> uh, don't. They don't take the time to, to understand that water has a memory, you know, uh, or that uh, plants are empathic, you know, and understand when uh, something uh, that's not even a plant is injured or dying, you know, they have that innate understanding. And because they appreciate these elements so much, it kind of makes them more of in the divine feminine, if you will, you know, yeah. and they take their their work very seriously. And it's not all about spells and it's not all about impeding upon somebody else's free will. It's, you know, it's really about embracing the magic of the elements, which we kind of like to see. We don't we don't see enough of that, mm-hmm. so even if it's witches. Yeah. But because go ahead, Tim. Yeah, who first turned me on to the paranormal was was a friend of mine who was a white witch practitioner. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, Pittsburgh. It's, <laughs> it's a, uh, paganism is a kind of original nature religion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's been around as long as humanity. Yeah. But uh, because, you know, it, it really is uh, speaks to your latest book. You know, it, it does beg the question with regard to the combination of belief and intent, because yeah, right. I think that might carry any practitioner even further than, you know, um, props or, or recipes or spells, you know, whether uh, white, gray or black uh, practitioner. Right. Um, and in your laboratory work, the uh, have you seen or uh, validated uh, psychokinesis or telekinesis? Yes. Okay. Uh, with, <laughs> well, that's a short I, answer. Well, uh, I, I tend to use the word psychokinesis more. It's more like the professional jargon rather than telekinesis. Okay. Uh, but that's, I, I've been doing those kinds of experiments for a very long time. Uh, it's currently what I'm working on are various kinds of physical targets uh, and from a physics perspective. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so to, to just give one example of where science and magic uh, cross in a sense, or they meet, Please, yeah. is uh, the idea of a uh, the notion of measurement in quantum mechanics. Oh, like the, the double uh, split hy- uh, double right, technique yeah. or hypothesis, where, where they actually see that it could be the scientist, if they have some sort of bias, they could possibly be affecting the experiment. Mm-hmm. And that's why they kind of pull them away from that. Well, it, it's not not quite that, but it's more that in a in a double slit optical system where you're dealing with interference of the wave nature of light, that if you know where each photon is going within the optical apparatus, that will change the wave nature into a particle nature, oh. and you can detect the difference very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, in physics 101, what what you learn is that uh, the nature of measurement of a photon will change its behavior. If you know something about it, it will change its behavior. And it's not simply that you're measuring it, but it's about your knowledge of it, mm. which is very strange when you think about it. Because let's say if you had you had two slits and you had a detector behind one of the slits and you have no detector behind the other one. Mm. So if you shoot one photon and it goes to the detector where 
you know that it went there because the detector fires, well, then you'll you'll end up with a particle-like display because it it you, you know what happened. Mm -hmm. But if the photon goes to the other slit and the detector does not fire, well, you also know that it went through that slit because you had a detector behind one and not behind the other. Right. That also will create an interference. It'll change the interference pattern into a particulate pattern, huh. which is very strange because nothing happened. Right? <laughs> the only thing that happened is that your knowledge changed. And wow. there's something about the knowledge of what's happening in the system will cause the behavior to change, almost like the photons are shy of oh, being looked at. Interesting. So we've done experiments, many now, I'm working on my 19th experiment of this wow. type, where we have a double slit system and we ask people to use their mind to imagine that they could get information about what the photons are doing. So it's kind of an abstract task because the, the double slit, the slit itself is 10 microns wide. 10 millionths of a meter wide. It's so thin that you, if you hold it up to the light, there are two of them sitting right next to each other. It's very difficult to see that there's actually two slits. Looks like one, because they're so close. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you need that because that's around the wavelength of light. So we asked somebody that, we have a sealed optical apparatus in front of us that has a double slit in it. We asked people to use clairvoyance to imagine that you can get information. Well, if you could extract any information out of that system with your mind, you would change the interference pattern. Yeah. And so we've done these experiments again and again, and I have one colleague now in Brazil who's replicated the, the effect, and you see a change in the interference pattern. It, yeah. In terms of magnitude, it's really tiny. You can't see it with your, with your naked eye, but with statistics, you could see that the, simply the act of paying attention to the optical system will change, change how the photons the are behaving. Wow. So this is like, this is psychokinesis on a very, very, very tiny scale. But it's an open problem in physics. Right. Like in physics, the, the idea of how do you measure a photon is still an open question. So yeah. it's it's relevant, and this is why I can publish these experiments in physics journals, which is wow. what I'm doing. That's that's fascinating. And yeah, it, it, it enhances a place that needs to be enhanced because, yeah, they're, I mean, they're attributing a lot of power to, I think, the researchers that might be in the room and maybe if they have some sort of idea of what's going to happen, they may affect, like you said, yes. you know, the, the actual measurement. So imagine now that uh, that something about expectation, belief, and, and the mind influences elementary particles. And now we go to the Large Hadron Collider where it took trillions upon trillions of, of collisions to find the Higgs boson. Mm -hmm. So... The interesting thing about all that is that what was found was so close to what everyone expected to find. Is that oh, some people, interesting. I like the way you phrased well, that. Well, yeah. I mean, they, some people were getting suspicious, saying, well, this is like exactly what we were expecting, mm -hmm. which is good in one sense because it supported the theory and they got the Nobel Prize as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, it's kind of disappointing from a, <laughs> from a physics perspective because it means you're not learning anything new. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Here's a case uh, where people are not trying to do psychokinetic effects on, on the Higgs boson, but nevertheless, maybe a little piece maybe of all of that intention, that. thousands of physicists and billions of dollars spent, might have influenced this large experiment. Wow, that's fascinating. Tim, you got anything? Dean, what's your, what's your thoughts and maybe your, your experiments with um, near-death experiences? Have you had any uh, research on that? 
We actually have not done research on near-death experience. I've, I've certainly read the literature a lot, and I know people who are looking into it. Uh, as best as I can tell, uh, the, the nature of the experiences are transformative in the sense that if somebody has a near-death experience and they remember it, mm -hmm. so they had the experience, uh, they typically are not the same person afterwards. Right. You know, their fear of death is gone and mm -hmm. all kinds of mostly positive changes will occur as a result. Uh, and they become completely convinced that they, they were dead and they have some kind of persistent life afterwards. Uh, trying to, again, stick that in the laboratory to find out what's really going on. Well, you have movies like Flatliners. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not volunteering for that. Uh, uh, me neither. So, so it's difficult. I mean, the closest we've gone to it is the research by Sam Parnia, who got permission that when doing a, a heart surgery, where they'd have to momentarily shock the heart so it would stop, uh, that they would interview people afterwards and ask if they had a near-death experience. So I think there were only two cases out of, out of quite a few, hundreds, where people did have an out-of-body experience and classic near-death experience. Uh, but it ends up being a story. Mm -hmm. All of the near-death experiences are a story. And they're consistent, which is interesting. They it's last normal. a long time. They're very vivid. They don't make sense. They don't match the idea of what would happen if the brain was getting starved of oxygen, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's something bizarre about it. But uh, again, as, as the empiricist as I am, I want to I do something with it. Mm -hmm. You know, may, do a flatliners kind of experiment. Except it's unethical, so it would kind of stuck. Well, you know, hey, you can come over to our place and do it. You know, we won't tell anybody. We're we're not always ethical where we live, so it's yeah. okay. Yeah, but it, 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 it's it, being ethical is not simply being nice. It's actually part yeah, of the true. law. Yeah, and it's is even if somebody gave their consent mm -hmm. to an experiment like that, it would still probably be unethical. Yeah. So, and, and your research might lead you to uh, at least think on an implied basis that those two people were believers in near-death experiences going in. I think I, actually, I think that they asked people beforehand what, what their expectations were. And at mm -hmm. least in one of the cases, if I remember correctly, he had no expectation. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So he didn't believe that he was going to have some kind of experience. The The kind of disappointing thing was that they, they did this. Uh, they stopped the heart of a lot of people, a few hundred people, but only like two had an experience that they remembered afterwards. Yeah. So it makes you wonder, even with the surveys and their death experience, it's not everyone. Some people have nothing. Well, wow. what happened there? Did they forget it like a dream? Or <laughs> why, you know, why is it not occur for everyone? Yeah. Well, we don't have good answers to that question yet. Yeah, but you did at least 50% of the, the that group had no expectation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that no, and of course there are many people uh, in at least in the survey literature who did who had no expectation either, and then they had the near death experience, and of course they become completely changed afterwards. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it'd be nice if we could figure out why did some people have it and some people did not, and yeah, we I don't think we know enough yet. Yeah. Still, I, I feel like I have a wider understanding on that. How about you, Tim? Yeah. You know, just I, by talking to Dean Radin here. <laughs> how cool that's kind of neat. So the other thing about near-death experience, I, I know people who have had near-death experiences and know people who study it. Right. They are convinced by the evidence that the that consciousness survives death. Right. Mm -hmm. that, right. That's the result. So I say, 
yes, there's a problem, though, mm-hmm. because uh, the way that uh, the most important part of the near-death experience, the part that we can verify is they say, well, the heart stopped at 2 o'clock, and at 2.10 they were doing some kind of surgery, but the, the heart was stopped, so the person was brain dead. Mm. And then at 2.20 they took them out of anesthesia and they started up the heart again. So the person will say, well, I, I remember seeing this happening. Uh, by The surgeons were doing such and such on me. And something was happening outside, and, and they were able to verify everything. So it is taken as proof that the mm-hmm. person is literally body dead, but their mind was still watching something. Mm-hmm. To which I say, how do we know that the that the person who is reporting this after they're revived, how do how do we know that it was that their experience is in clock time, right? We're we're living in clock time. Right. But if there's anything that we know about psychic phenomena, it is not in clock it's time. It's not right? in clock time, yeah, yeah. The other thing we know is that uh, anything other than the ordinary state of awareness, like all these non-ordinary states that are induced by psychedelics and drumming and all kinds of things, mm-hmm. that's where you start seeing strong psychic effects. Mm-hmm. So what could be stronger as a non-ordinary brain state than dying? Yes, yeah. In which case, in the going from a state of conscious awareness to brain dead, you transition through a stage, which is maybe something like a dream state, where you become psychically very open, and you can perceive all kinds of stuff, but not in clock time. So maybe what you perceive is, yeah, you see the whole operation, you all the way out till when you get resuscitated at the end, that's the memory. So then you're brain dead, everything goes flatline, now you revive later, and what you're remembering is what you perceived on the way down, mm-hmm. not while it was happening. Right. So I use this this argument about the temporal slipperiness <clears throat> of, of these psychic effects, and uh, my, my colleagues who strongly believe in that near-death experience means that consciousness survives, they don't like that argument at all. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that does make sense. Because you're going you know, gamma, delta, you know, all these different uh, states uh, in a very short amount of time, okay. like you said. Yeah. I've also, you know, when, uh, you, when you have a dream, the, the inside the dream, your memory of the dream could be that it's going on forever. Mm-hmm. But if you objectively measure uh, REM stage in your eyes, it could be like five seconds. Mm-hmm. Yep. So our, our, our notion of how long things last in these altered states is dramatically different than clock time. Wow. I've heard stories oh. where people who've had near-death experiences have enhanced psychic ability as well, or yes. you know, they, they start having psychic ability. Yes, that is very commonly reported, and I keep waiting for somebody to do an experiment <laughs> to, to to demonstrate that that is the case. Right. So it, it would be difficult because you need to, to run millions of people and wait until they have a near-death experience and then test right. them after. But at least what we could do is take a bunch of people who didn't have near-death experiences and compare them against people who did. Yeah. So so that would be something well, that... We'll would still do it. I'm, I'm tired of being ethical. You know, I've been ethical for too long. <laughs> Tim, hey, Tim, we'll have to do a Flatliners road trip. Yeah, even well, if they put me under <laughs> anesthesia, I can have experience, you know what I mean? Yeah, who's volunteering? <laughs> it's not me. I'll volunteer and put me under anesthesia. Well, you know, in both the Flatliners films, there's always a hot chick involved, so we'll have to bring one of those along, too, you know, <laughs> just to make it valid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, I, I want to speak from one psych major to another. I, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, 
because the one thing, and again, I was a psychopathology guy, but I wasn't you know, like Freud or Jung. I was R.D. Lang, you know, it's kind of pretty radical uh, stuff where you can imagine a situation where uh, somebody can uh, convince themselves into some sort of psych psychopathy. <laughs> um, and I was, uh, what I took out of that class, I have a relative that's schizophrenic. So I went there in essence to heal them, you know, with my romantic sense of things back in the 70s. But self-fulfilling prophecy was the one thing I carried out above just about everything else. I thought it was part of uh, the core of our personality, you know, where we actually will believe that if we have an injury that we are not consciously aware of, you know, like we scrape our arm and, so, and out of the corner eye, we see ourselves bleeding. The first thing we do is we go, ow, <laughs> even though we didn't feel the pain, which yeah. should be the tip off, you know, if you didn't feel it before, you shouldn't feel it now, but no, because I was brought up to believe and taught to believe that torn skin and blood equals pain response. I would rather be right than pain free. <laughs> and uh, with that said, and your understanding of uh, the power of belief and intent and all the things that you've done and proven in a laboratory setting. I have to ask you about both the, the in our culture, the mental health and, and, and health professions. Uh, with the tendency to label or be quick to label, especially in this DNA, uh, day and age, ADHD and, and uh, autism spectrum or fibromyalgia or Crohn's or, or all these things. And the people will get this label from somebody smarter than them and they say, okay, I must have this. And then they go into that self-fulfilling prophecy, which pushes them further into disease. Yeah. Um, uh, just in general, do you, do you see that? Does it bother you, the medicines that they're, we're watching on commercials now or the side effects are worse than whatever we're treating, but we're basically giving poison in order to heal people. I haven't really cured anything since, what, polio? You know, 100 years ago or so. That um, this, uh, when, when they offer a diagnosis that comes with a label, you know, that may push the person more into illness than healing, or as an indigenous tribal cultures, you might see the exact opposite. The entire community comes together to pray and chant and heal this person, and it works. Now, do you see the effects of that taking into consideration? I mean, you're doing double blind studies, which takes the placebo effect into consideration. But for me, a self-fulfilling prophecy is a big deal. And I think that, especially in the last maybe 15, 20 years, the labeling, you know, mm -hmm. uh, may be doing more harm than good. It's a very generalized question, but it's something I know is passionate to you. And, and just as a fellow psych major, you know, how you feel about that sort of thing. Well, I think there's a spectrum here. If you're exposed to Ebola, the likelihood is, 50% likelihood, it is going to kill you no matter what you think. Mm -hmm. uh, if you believe that you were getting some kind of vaccine or a shot that would help you, it probably would to some extent, but it still might kill you. Right. So there, there are things that, that are really impinging on the body. You know, if you eat a, a block of uranium, you're going to die. <laughs> True. I've been watching uh, that Chernobyl on HBO. It's very good. Yeah. So on the other hand... 
you're right about labeling, but it, it, it's a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, the, the if you're given a label of something like a lethal, something that's going to kill you, I think that's actually unethical to tell somebody that, 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 that sorry, this is a terminal disease, you have six months left, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you're out of here. That's I think that's unethical because sometimes there are spontaneous remissions. Sometimes it was misdiagnosed. There's all kinds of reasons why that's not a very nice thing to say to somebody. True. Even uh, though the good news is that unethical guy could come to our flatliners party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, the, but the other side of it is that let's say you're diagnosed with some kind of an illness and, and we know how to cure that, mm-hmm. right? You have XYZ syndrome. And by the way, we know how to fix that. So, and then, so you have a, a double duty. For one thing, you say, okay, finally, they understand what's going on. Yeah. That's useful. That's and secondly, useful. oh, we can fix it now that we understand what it is. Pharmaceuticals is an amazing thing now that, that it ex- extends our, our lifespan like by a factor of two. Mm. And there are people now working on it by expanding by a factor of 10. Mm. So the average lifespan would be like 200. So is this a good thing or not? Well. I mean, personally, of course, we'd all like to, to live healthily, be healthy for a long time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And that is probably the way that medicine will play out, that we will maintain health and vitality in old age up until you're maybe 100 and then you're dead. Mm-hmm. As opposed to this long, slow decline. That could yeah, take I, I don't years. want to be 200, man, ever. <laughs> well, no, but if you're 200, but you remain vital, like like you were about 50, say, up up until like two days before you died, that would be good, I think. That would be. Yeah. yeah. So I, that that's how a lot of medicine is moving today. It's in that direction. I think the problem that people have with pharmaceuticals, though, is that they're perceived as being motivated primarily by profit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and in some cases clearly it's just motivated by profit Mm -hmm. so i know a little bit about this because uh i'm part of a company that is developing a a new genetic type of pharmaceutical it's not a chemical thing it's a genetic editing method but when you look at what's necessary to go uh, what do you need to do in order to get it up to the point where the Food and Drug Administration says, okay, now you can sell this. Mm, yeah. We're talking about a hundred a hundred million at absolute minimum, more likely a half a billion or even a billion dollars to to do clinical trials to get up to that stage. To get up to that point, yeah. Right. So you need to have a gigantic company with huge resources in order to make very small increments, and now we have this bill and now this bill and so on. So it's just it's very expensive to do that. So to do the right thing. <laughs> well, I mean, we're there are discussions about pills. You take one pill and it will cure you. And so, what does the pharmaceutical company do to charge that? It'd right. be nice to give it away for free. You know, when you have hepatitis C, take this one pill and you will no longer have it. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But the company figures out they they have to charge thirty thousand dollars for that pill. Sure. Yeah. Because it took a lot to develop it, and you know, well, it makes sense. One pill cures you, but it'll cost you pretty much your home, you know, your well, livelihood, your first born. I, I know male that this is this is a big problem. I mean, there are a lot of discussions that go on about well, what what do you charge for something where you'll never sell another pill? Yeah, it's it's a tricky issue. So yeah, it's tricky. I, I think the the larger issue is that that at least in the United States we have a health system that is based on profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is killing us. 
It Literally. is killing us. Yeah, killing us. it really is. And, and so I would think that you'd, you'd hope that the whole point of government is to protect its citizens, and it's not doing a very good job. Yeah. Right. The side yeah. effects are worse than the actual, you know. Yeah, there's acne cream that'll give you a St. Vitus dance, for <laughs> God's sakes. I mean, you know, well, but you at least your face will be clear. I know. What do you, you know, choose one or the other? You want yeah, restless right. legs or do you want your head to fall off? <laughs> yeah. You'll be dead, but you're going to look younger, you know. Yeah. You won't have those wrinkles anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and with, with uh, now you, you're talking about uh, something where your understanding of genetics can, can actually help something. And, right. and first case, and foremost, bless you for that. But it begs the question, how do you feel about, um, you know, cloning and, and things of that? nature i mean look using genetics to to cure something is one thing uh but using genetics to make our species unnatural mm -hmm. if you will uh well, i'm you know uh, no, i'm well, not cloning, religious but that that bothers me a little yeah cloning is a very different issue than genetic engineering right so let's let's say i'll ask you a question let's say you could clone your body mm -hmm. so you cloned it but in such a way that it doesn't have a brain so presumably it has, has no awareness, but has all of your organs in it. Mm -hmm. So you keep that thing alive for a while, and then at some time you need a, a transplant for a kidney. Well, you, okay. you take the kidney of the clone, right? You're growing it. It's like harvesting something that you know is going to be compatible with your body. Right. Is that an ethical thing to do, or is that Frankenstein? Frankenstein? Boy, that's an excellent question, you know, because it could be answered either way, you know. Right. Uh, so you grow it without a, br a brain. With mm -hmm. the hope that our a sense of identity requires a brain, right? And that, at this point, we think that's the case, but we don't actually know what gives know. rise to consciousness anyway. Maybe it's the brain, maybe it isn't. So right. maybe if you had a brainless body that that was made out of your same DNA, maybe it has a sense of awareness in some some way. Right, right. Because the cells, you know, if you think about it, would be aware. Or you know, just the and, rest and their of the own little way, system. as aware yeah. as a cell would be. To have a nervous system, there has to be some sort of awareness to control it, whether it be right. a, so, um, yeah, a, some yeah, sort of autonomic nervous system or, or whatever to, yeah. in order to do that, it would still. You can be it. in a vegetative state and still digest food perfectly, perfectly well. Mm. Yeah, because, I've, I've done that before. <laughs> you know, college days. <laughs> oh, is that out loud? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, but yeah see the, no, that's an outstanding question, though, because it really puts things in, in perspective of yeah. where, where is the line. Yeah. So, OK, so the next question is, if you could do a genetic engineering of, of some aspect of your, your body because you knew that if you change something, you wouldn't get Alzheimer's when you got old, mm -hmm. would you do it? No. You wouldn't do it? I wouldn't do it. No, I, I just have this. Uh, I guess I'm old school. But I think that, you know, I was meant to have this life as it, as it stands now. You don't think a clone ship would be cool? I wouldn't do anything to, to change that out, outside of my own consciousness in my own body. You know, outside of that, to me, is an, it's, invasive is the wrong word. Maybe unnatural for me. It's my concern that the more they're doing with the genetics, the more possibility that this could be our final generations as a natural modern homo sapien. You know. well, well, that is true, except if you look at an evolutionary point of view, Homo sapiens is just one of many, many species. Sure. So there are people working on Homo superior, mm -hmm. like the, the guy in China who got into right. a lot of trouble. 
Yeah. So it's, this is a step towards Homo Superior, and I don't. The genie is out of the bottle. Right. Because it used to be really difficult to do genetic engineering. Now you can buy a kit for three hundred bucks and do it. <laughs> That's true. But to me, and and I'm ever the romantic. So I look at, again, Dr. William Tiller, you know, worked with a friend of mine, a friend of ours, uh, Susie Miller, has this program called Awesomeism, mm -hmm. where she looks at people in the autism spectrum, mm -hmm. but sees them as uh, part of that almost uh, superior, if you will, really mm -hmm. an advanced, you know, they're at such an advanced level that that's why they're so overloaded all the time. Mm -hmm. That's why their sensitivities are so much because they seem to come from this greater place, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if anything, it's just a wonderful, wonderful way to see people in the autism spectrum. But right. the, the fact that Dr. T uh, Tiller was so involved, you know, uh, says to me that, you know, maybe there's something more to this. You know, maybe she's seeing something we're all not. And it's a little on the metaphysical side, you know. I mean, she's talking about uh, seeing them in, in kind of an interdimensional or multidimensional way, right. which is something that you can't replicate in a laboratory. Um, but it's just, you know, it's romantic and, and it, it takes away that self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it puts them in maybe one that's a, a, a bit more grand, if you will. And sure. I like to see that. Yeah, but then, no, you know, I, I get it. But that's me and I don't have any friends, so it doesn't really matter. Dr. Florian is sticking to it. <laughs> no, I think in the, in the case of genetic engineering where it could change your body. Okay, how about this? So your your knee falls apart, and so you're, you can either be even maybe difficult to replace the knee by surgery. So what about taking your own stem cells and injecting it into your knee to make new cartilage? Well, to me that's different because they're they're. I'm all for that. Would they be my stem cell? It can be the be yeah. No, it'd be your your stem cell. Well, they come from me. Yeah, it's something that comes from me anyway that makes me better. You know, but if it's created in a laboratory, you know. Uh, well, I would think twice about it. Yeah, it, you, I mean, you do have to take it out of your body and spin it down and, and prepare it, but it is right. from, from you. If it's yeah. going to cure you from knee it? problems, heck yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like me, you know. I, I can do anything for it. I go back to the research on, on organ energy from the, the 30s, where this guy thought it was a, a life force that was helping on a cellular level. And again, Bruce Lipton, a guy that I know you know, yeah. that, that is really you know, gives a lot of credit to our cells. And, you know, if if we had a better understanding of our cells, you know, we might have a better understanding of, of some self-healing uh, procedure principle, if you will, yeah. to make ourselves better. You know, so it, in that sense, yeah, because it, it's something that comes from uh, me. But the, I and I understand that the, the work that you're doing is, is not what I'm uh, being critical of, uh, because what you're doing is taking an understanding of chemistry on the on the most reduced level, if you will, the smallest and, you know, down mm -hmm. to particles and uh, taking that understanding and utilizing that in order for the body to help itself, you know, but even to, you know, to get half of that research, you know, I mean, you'd, you'd have to own China. <laughs> you know, just say, off the interest, you know, you could, you could do the research. So, you know, so I love that. But when I hear that they're trying, someday soon we'll be able to pick our kids, you know, do you want, do you want them athletic or smart? You know, do you want them tall or short? You know, do you want, do you want him or her? You know, that, that scares me. Yeah. That's because I'm, you know, I'm kind of that old school, uh, you know, thing.
Hey, hey Mr. Stuff. Old School, you want to take a break? Oh, yeah. Old School people love breaks, man. <laughs> Besides, it's your show, you know. Yeah. So. I thought we were going past the seven, you know, first hour. <laughs> so, I, I do, how much more is there? Ten minutes or? No, we got, uh, what do we got now? Uh, 40, 40 minutes. Yeah, about 40 minutes left. I'll take uh, about a five-minute minute, yeah, five break. To the, the, the top of the hour. Yeah. Okay. So I'll take a break. You won't be able to hear the break in your headphones, but our mics will be like. Yeah, it'll be like a four or five minute break. We'll just play some commercials and, and uh, part of a song. So, yeah. you ready? Right. Yeah. You say the word, brother. Okay. You're listening to the Supernatural Realm on the WCET FM. 101.7 in Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia Talk. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to WCT.FM Talk Radio like no other. Guess what, folks? Late Night in the Midlands archive is deep, going back several years, and you can have access to it all by becoming a late nighter. Becoming a late nighter is easy and only costs $5 a month. Late nighters get access to so much more that others do not, such as the full three hours of the L&M show with bumpers and archives that go back years, the special video interview page where you can watch some of the greatest interviews in studio on camera. The L&M newsletter will make you the most informed listeners because you will know before anyone else about special events and so much more. So click the subscribe button today and become a late nighter. So go to www.latenightinthemidlands.com. That is www.latenightinthemidlands.com and sign up now. We are a 12-member bi-coastal PR team, San Francisco, LA, and New York. We are PR with a conscience. We love spirituality, new age stuff, nutritional, green, environmental, health, medical, things that make a difference. A big deal for us was changing our tagline about maybe seven, eight years ago. We changed it to PR with a conscience. So it's Steve Allen Media, PR with a conscience, which is really important to us. Because we all sort of looked at each other and said, hey, what's it all about, Alfie? Where are we going? And we are also being sort of drawn towards that spirituality, new thought, uh, self-help, nutritional, green, health, medical areas anyway. So we sort of all asked each other, what's, what's a cool tagline? And that sort of came out naturally. Uh, we're proud of it. We, we think that way and we, uh, we act that way. All of our business comes from referrals or word of mouth. We've never had to advertise. Our top three strengths, our media contacts, our work ethic, and we're PR with a conscience. If you get media, and your media gets brighter and brighter and brighter, I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is going to happen is something is going to, is going to have you happen. You're going to be seen. And I can, I can show all kinds of examples of that from people who, are, who now have uh, a television series, uh, people who are on-air talents, columnists, uh, book deals. The list goes on, and it's only because they were seen. Imagine a ray of sunlight that is forgotten that it is an inseparable part of the sun and deludes itself into believing that it has to fight for existence and create and cling to an identity other than the sun. 
Would the death of that delusion not be incredibly liberating? What is the supernatural realm exactly? Why do people have paranormal or mystical experiences? There's some science behind it they're not looking at. Why do some people have negative encounters and others don't? What are the best methods to use and is there some new truth to them? We'll ask these questions on the hit radio show Supernatural Realm with Tim Roxbury Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your co-host Chip Reichenthal. Supernatural Realm, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 Eastern, leading into Michael Vera's Late Night in the Midlands at 9, right here on WCETFM, because that's where the action is. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk Entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Kindness Beyond the Veil. Even in the darkest realms and mysteries, good things happen. Kind, even loving things. In the paranormal, psychic world, extraterrestrials, mystical healing, light workers, starseeds, things that have astounded us since the beginning of time do have a Monday side to them. And we'll show you on Kindness Beyond the Veil every Monday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your host, Chip Reichenthal. Leading into Michael Barra's Late Night in the Midlands show at 9 Eastern, making Mondays worthy of looking forward to right here on WCETFM because that's where the action is. And welcome back to Supernatural Realm on WCET. Dot FM. Also on Columbia Talk, 101.7 FM in Columbia, South Carolina. Well, we're back with our guest, and uh, it's a great honor to have Dean Raiden with us. Chip, are you there, buddy? Chip. Looks like Chip has, is muted. Oh. <laughs> Dean, is there anything that you would like to talk about? we got about a half hour left. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say that we haven't covered yet? Well, we haven't talked much about my book, Real Magic. Okay. Oh, I, I do have a question in that regard because there is something in the description that caught me. Sure. Since we're talking about it, and it's just over a year old now, so, you know, happy anniversary there. Also wanted to ask if you have any books forthcoming, but there was something about uh, what the description said, and, and I, I like the idea. And it's something about uh, it, it, it being involved with magic of any kind requires focus more than anything else. And there is uh, something about this focus that you talk about in your book. So I wanted to ask you about that, uh, considering that, you know, well, magic can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, um, I always use the more uh, romantic description of it. You know, because any experience that I have that feeds me to uh, a higher uh, state, if you will, uh, higher vibrational state, whatever, is is magic. You know, uh, there's magic in love and things of that nature. But there was something that, that you said 
also mentioned your work in Stargate, and probably ask you about that too, but uh, that where focus can really help you uh, develop, you know, this kind of sense, if you will, if that's not an unfair description of what that means. Could you talk about what you meant by that, by focus? Well, I, I suppose uh, you're referring to the notion of both intention, but clarity as well. Yes. So uh, if you want to achieve a goal, the more clear you are about what it would mean to achieve the goal, the more likely it is going to happen. Okay. So yeah, if, that's, I mean, if, that's good. If you just, that's why if, I don't like the law of attraction stuff that they talk about. You know, if you believe you're there, then it will happen. It's like, no, do the work. <laughs> well, well, it's both. It's actually both. Okay. Right? So the belief and the clarity of intention are by themselves are very important, but without actually doing something about it, it means that the probability that that result will come about is is much lower. Yeah. So we know from laboratory studies that if, if you get something like an electronic random number generator and sit it in front of somebody, that generator on its own will behave almost exactly like you expect by chance. Mm -hmm. It'll fluctuate around chance very nicely because that's what the things are designed to do. If you give somebody the intention that it's going to start producing more ones and zeros, it'll do that too. It's doing it in a, in a very small probabilistic way, but it's doing it. Mm -hmm. So what that, that tells you is that if you're sitting at home and, and you're dreaming about getting a gold-plated Mercedes to show up in your driveway, the act of doing that intention, even with great clarity, will increase the probability. But unless you go out and do something, the likelihood that that small increase in probability will actually manifest as a gold-plated Mercedes is pretty darn small. <laughs> so small that it, it might as well not even be there. But if you, if you both have the intention and go out and work on it, even some kind of work, it, it, it'll vastly increase the likelihood of it happening. Wow, I love that answer. And it, it seems that there's kind of a scale to where you're going with your books. I mean, the conscious universe you mentioned a couple of times, and I think that's kind of a staple. I think, you know, that's one of those uh, books that a lot of people have, you know, especially if they're really into the uh, metaphysics or scientific or uh, sp uh, spiritual communities, you know. I, I, know I know for that book that the Secretary of Defense had a copy of it. Wow. One of the secretaries, uh, because when when he passed away, there was an estate sale of his books, and somebody I know bought the book from his estate sale and had his nameplate in the book. Wow! I mean, how cool is that, right? I can guarantee he didn't have a copy of my book. You know, just saying. But um, but you know, I mean, from there you went uh, to entangled minds, and some of that we kind of covered by default. <laughs> In this interview, um, let me say why I, I, I moved from the conscious universe. So there's actually a logical progression here. Yeah, I, I see it too. I also see it from that to the real magic. So, yeah. Oh, so yeah. So Timmy's saying, well, what what about your book? My book, my book or your book? I, uh, your, book. your book. Yeah, he knows about my book. I'm okay. the you know. It's not about me today, especially when we got you here. But yeah, I do see that, you know, and, and from the entangled minds, the real magic. But what took you from the um, from the conscious universe to the entanglement book, the entangled minds book? Okay, so the conscious universe, I actually started reading or writing it when I was at Princeton. 
So I, I've oh, written wow. about about eighty percent of it when I was at Princeton, and I tried to sell it, and nobody wanted to buy it. So okay, so I just kind of sat there for a while. That was back in nineteen eighty six. So sitting on this book, and the purpose of it was uh, that I knew and my colleagues knew that the amount of of repeatable evidence for these kinds of psychic effects is actually pretty dramatic. There's a lot of evidence. Hardly anybody knew about it. So I wanted to write a book that that laid it out and and also said enough about the way that science assesses whether or not something is real or not. And that's mainly what that book is about. It's wow. just it Boy, talk, talk about ahead of its time, too. Well, like, it is, you're it's already still thinking print. about stuff we couldn't talk about out loud in 1986, most of us, you know, that yeah. we now can and ahead of its time. Yeah. So that that book, it remains in print. So it means that it's been mm-hmm. selling continuously for over 20 years now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. So Entangled Minds came about because after people would read The Conscious Universe, they would always ask, well, then how do you explain this stuff? <laughs> Which is a, a question largely about physics. Mm-hmm. And so I felt, okay, I need to address this issue about quantum mechanics and show how we don't completely understand how it works, but it is at least compatible with what we know about physics. Mm-hmm. So it, that's why I was using entanglement as a somewhere between a metaphor and an, an analogy. The next question that would come up after people read Entangled Minds is, uh, it still doesn't explain how it works, so what kind of clue can we get? So I said, okay, I will first look at the Eastern esoteric literature. Mm-hmm. And so the, the place to look there is in yoga. Okay. Which, because it's it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of Eastern esotericism. really does. And in particular, the classic book of yoga, the Yoga Sutras, written about 2,000 years ago, has one of the four books of the Yoga Sutras, which is all about psychic phenomena. So this was written 2,000 years ago and gives a taxonomy of about 25 different psychic effects that occur as a result of disciplined meditative practice. So real magic is doing a similar exercise for the Western esoteric traditions. Oh, good. And and there too, you start looking at uh, what what did magic mean in the esoteric traditions? Well, the analogy is that Today's technology is to the scientific worldview as magic was to the esoteric worldview. Right. Well, they had alchemy back in, you know, back in, well, not 2,000 years ago, but, you know, 1,500 years ago easily, 1,600, 1,700 years ago. Yeah. And, and, and they, you know, uh, uh, astronomers, <laughs> not astrologers, but astronomers, I mean, that was a, a course of high study in 350 BC, you know. And the alchemy too. I mean, the, for even for Western culture, but right. still a long time ago, which really ties in, because yeah, bringing Eastern traditions in, especially ancient ones, into Western culture, and science is not an easy thing to do. But you you you've done it. You know, you've done it in a way that, again, is is uh, still ahead of its time for this day and age. Well, I hope not too far ahead of its time. Well, I I don't mean in a a sense where you can't understand it, but, you know, I mean, 50 years from now, the book will still be as timely as it is now. And just like when you you first came up with the the ideas uh, for the the conscious, but you said in 1986 you were really in Princeton and you were coming up with these ideas that we're talking about more today 
than we did in 1986. Yeah. So okay. So uh, well, yes and no. So that if you look, <laughs> okay. you look back to about the late 1800s. You can find lots and lots of books written about various kinds of psychic phenomena. Well, true. And and there's a, a com- continual progression of yeah. such books. So yeah. as they often say, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. In, in writing it, I wrote in my particular style, and I, I tried to bring all of the the evidence up to date in each book because you know science marches on. Um, but there aren't that many people working in this field, so the the uh, speed of progression is pretty slow. Just <laughs> just the other day, somebody was saying, uh, "Yeah, if they've been working on this for like 130 years and haven't made much progress, and there's probably nothing going on." Wow. So my response to that is, yeah, we've had at any given time roughly 40 people working with a total budget of maybe a half a million dollars for for 100 and some years, and we have made progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's, so we are making progress, but now compare that to uh, maybe 300 billion dollars a year spent on cancer research <laughs> for 200 years, and right. people are still dying of cancer. Right. So, well, why, well, why is that? You have thousands and thousands of highly trained scientists working on this problem. It's a hard problem. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> so, psychic phenomena is a very hard problem too because it involves consciousness in some way that we don't understand very well. Yeah. In fact, in some respects, we don't understand it at all. It's yeah. way worse than cancer. At least cancer, we know it has something to do with the body. And for consciousness, we don't know what that is. And in, the, in that sense, it, it begs a question because, especially on this program here with Timmy and I, we see a lot of people that are, um, I think, born again is the wrong term, but it would make sense in, in the regard that they were came came into the, uh, their adult world. You know, is very logically minded people. You know, doctors, uh, physicists, engineers, lawyers, scientists that are now really kind of bought into uh, the paranormal world, the psychic world, the extraterrestrial contactee world, you know, because something happened to them that completely uh, turned, you know, it made, it's something that they they experienced in such a way that it was a, as good as a lab experiment, you know, being, uh, being affirmed over and over. <clears throat> so it begs the question, have you ever had uh, a... Um, have you ever seen like a ghost or had some sort of extraterrestrial or non-human intelligent contact of any kind or any kind of experience, experience, experience like that personally <clears throat> that added to your curiosity or did was it just enough curiosity to go by, you know, to, to work harder than anybody that we know, you know, to really put verbs in the sentences of the paranormal and the psychic. Uh, or extraterrestrial even communities with your work. Uh, so as far as the great unwashed paranormal goes, <laughs> uh, no, I, I have not seen Bigfoot. I have not seen the Loch Ness Monster. I have not seen a UFO. I have not had contact with an ET. Uh, I might have seen a ghost one time, but I wasn't quite sure. Okay. So that, that kind of covers a lot of the territory there. Uh, I have spent uh, probably a total of about 500 hours doing field investigations of haunted sites. And it's very easy to, to freak yourself out when mm-hmm. you're doing that. Sure. One of the sites I was at was, uh, 
a castle, an 800-year-old castle oh, in Sweden. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> which, was, which was used by the Nazis during the Second World War. Oh, And they Lord. put prisoners in the dungeon. Oh, my. See, you're killing me a little bit here. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> so we, we would start, we would do our ghost hunting and our haunting at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I can guarantee that when you're a little bit jet lagged and you're three o'clock in the morning and you're in a Nazi castle in the middle of nowhere in Sweden, you will see a ghost. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so what I was more interested in what my own experience might be, I mean, we saw a couple of strange lights we couldn't account for, things like that, was whether we could record anything, right? right? I mean, that's the big thing now. You get some kind of instrument and record something. And we did record a couple of anomalies. Wow. Uh, but the the probably the strangest anomaly that that happened there was there was a report that is a certain room in this castle that was uh, associated with seeing the white lady. Ah, the white right? lady. Sure. So the white lady shows up like everywhere. Yeah, but so in Sweden, it, you know, big 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 deal there. Well, it's just it's the white lady so so they didn't tell us what room it would be this is a castle so it had a lot of rooms oh, okay in it. yeah and we we told them don't tell us where it is we want sure. to go around and see what line study right yeah so we we went around and i went around various kinds of instruments looking for things like uh, changes in radiation levels and things like that so one room was different than the others from both from an electromagnetic perspective and a radiation perspective and i said well this is the only one that looks different than the others so I, I went out of the castle, next guy came in. The next guy happened to be Raymond Moody. Oh, who, wow. You know, the life, sure. life after life guy. Yeah. So Raymond is a little more sensitive to these things than I am, and he wandered around the castle, ended up in the same room. That room happened to have a, a, a floor-to-ceiling length mirror in it. So Raymond got the idea that he would just sit in, sit in front of the mirror and meditate for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he reported that something came out of the mirror. Mm-hmm. Like a, the white lady came out of the mirror and engaged him in some kind of conversation. Interesting. So he came out as, as white as the white lady. <laughs> and then somebody else went in. And we all ended up choosing the same room as being anomalous. I didn't experience, I, I didn't see anything other than at, at one point I saw like a, a streak of light. I have no idea what that even means. Uh, in that, but in that room. So, uh-huh. well, well, what is it then? I have no idea what it is. I do know, though, that I spent a huge amount of time doing this. And if I take that amount of time and I put it into a laboratory test, I get way more data on it. Right. So, it's simply from a matter of how do you how are you going to spend your time, I, I decided that uh, while I've investigated probably a dozen or so different kinds of haunted sites around the world that it just wasn't paying off. It wasn't yielding enough of interest to persist it. From scientific perspective, there are uh, some scientists who say that people who are exposed to uh, higher uh, electromagnetic frequency uh, might experience, you know, hair on the back of their neck standing up or this feeling that they're being watched. So it could be just a natural explanation to wash most of those experiences away, even if they're subjective. But again, to your point, you know, the people that are believers were, are, would be more inclined to experience something like that. But they said basically from a physical study, you know, higher exposure to a higher electromagnetic frequency could create that kind of thing. Right. Uh, do, do you agree with that? Yeah. So one time we, we did a haunting investigation of a bar 
in Kentucky that was supposedly haunted. And and so uh, we interviewed a lot of people who said that they had felt something or seen something, and we traced it to two locations in the bar. And again, they're seeing a white lady or a gray lady. It's always the same kind of thing. Right. Uh, and so both locations had an, an electrical uh, step-down transformer right at oh. that spot. Ah. So in one case, it was something near the bar. It was some some kind of electrical thing, and that's where people would see this this ghost. And the other case, it was going downstairs into the basement, and you happen to pass an electrical panel on the way down, and we measured the what was going on magnetically there, and there were huge magnetic fields. A third place, people would say they suddenly felt disoriented, and so we uh, we were we we thought that if you're walking around in a sort of semi-dark room, even without drinking, mm. and the floor is actually not flat, it's it's tilted a little bit, yeah. and you don't know that. Right. You will be walking along and suddenly be disoriented because you actually throw <laughs> yeah, off to the side. <laughs> That's where people were saying they suddenly would feel a sense of disorientation because the floor, which you expect to be flat, was actually tilted. Right. So we didn't find anything in, in that place that was didn't have a normal explanation to it. Interesting. We, we didn't, there weren't any mirrors in those two rooms, right? Inside no, in this place, no, in a bar, you, you don't want to. You don't want a lot of mirrors in a bar. Firing minds wanted to know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's Timmy's question. Timmy, for the record, has lost his microphone, so uh, I'm asking questions on Timmy's perhaps using quantum entanglement, you know? Yeah, and, uh, and hand signals. Books of yeah. <laughs> semaphore semaphore <laughs> hand signals, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too, but you know, sounds more interesting saying it's quantum entanglement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, uh, uh, back to the... the the books, you know, um, the, especially the most recent three had kind of times to each other. Is there a new book that you're working on at the moment? Anything that you want to, you you know, and if it's something you don't want to, you know, uh, spoiler alert on or anything, you know, <laughs> we'll honor that too. Well, so what, but what I can say is that because uh, Real Magic has been selling so well, that my editor said, uh, well, what's your next book? We, we, we'll we'll buy it, whatever it is. So we want that book now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not principally an author, right? I mean, I spend a lot of time doing laboratory work and writing papers and things like that. And so mm. writing a book takes a good takes chunk a of time. Sure, three to yeah. six months of doing nothing else. Yeah. Uh, but I thought for a while I'd be writing a book on practical magic. Because oh, real wow. magic is, is like evidence and theory somewhat and... I, I could write about practical magic. Like, what do you do? How would you do it? Hmm. And then I started looking around, and there are dozens and dozens of books about practical, practical magic. Practical magic, and a Sandra so, Bullock movie by that name too. Yeah, and it, well, so I don't, I don't need to write another book like that. How about how I got one for you? Flatliners Road Trip book. <laughs> <laughs> we found two unethical guys who were willing to take me out. <laughs> And shock people to death if only for a minute, you know, just to just to see stuff. Yeah, it's got to be more than a minute. No, you, okay. you have to, uh, especially for the hot chick that goes under, you know. Yeah, it's more like like ten minutes or something. And we'll we'll cool your body down. You know, we'll we'll cool you down to forty right. fifty degrees, so you're you, yeah. you know you can be revived later. But it, we need some time back in that space. Okay. So I, I do have. Think about it though. I do have an idea about uh, another couple of books, actually. 
uh, w one of which will go more de in detail on theory. Because the part of, of what I talk about in Real Magic is my sense of, of uh, the clue that the esoteric traditions provide. The reason I started looking at it is because like physics today doesn't tell you what's going on. It's no, not good it, enough. It it's, it's not very human, you know. And well, well, it's yeah, it's not at the human scale. Yeah. So, so I started looking at the esoteric traditions because that was before science, most of it, mm -hmm. and people were just as smart back then as they are today. Sometimes smarter in many cases. Yeah. Not in yours, but I mean, you know, most of most of the people I know, I, I would say. say you know, uh, and those old wives' tales. Well, some of those old wives are really smart. Right? Yeah, I've got an old <laughs> wife, so I can vouch for her. Yeah. <laughs> so she never hears what I said. So but, the esoteric traditions do provide a clue as to what's going on here. I talk about that in Real Magic, yeah. uh, and as a result, the the clue basically is that it's all based on consciousness, all of it. See, and that's a you know, I mean, I'm. I'm been so excited. Well, Timmy and I both have been so excited about, you know, thinking more about consciousness and its real role, you know, standard model or no standard model, and, and, and even enhancing the possibilities of all the things that we see and all the things that you've written about, mm -hmm. where consciousness potentially is an energy form or is a force, if you will, if not actual energy, um, is more and more talked about you know, even from the physics community. Yeah. Yeah, we could we could do that, sure. Yeah, uh, Timmy wants to, and I, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, he, he hopes he can stay on for a little while after the show so he can talk. Uh, if that's, uh, if you could, that would be great. But was wondering if you could return to the show, you know, maybe sometime in July or August or September to, to further talk about, you know, to get more in detail about your books proper and some of the um, some of the projects you're working on that you're passionate about. Sure. Okay, great. Yeah, we could we could talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. <laughs> Dean Raiden, our honored guest today here on Supernatural Room. Poor Timmy lost his microphone, but but that's okay because because we can hang. I, I should uh, I should ask you formally where people can find you or find more about you or find your books. Or any other projects that you're passionate about, any you know documentaries or our articles you have out that you really wanted to talk about. Well, any two two websites. One is deanraden.com. That's easy enough. Yeah. yeah, if you follow that, you, it'll eventually lead you to the right website. I, I just keep that name as a kind of placeholder. <laughs> uh, the the actual website is realmagicbook.com, but you'll, ah. you can get there through deanraden.com. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, noetic.org. So, ah, so I work I at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and so yeah. noetic.org will tell you everything you ever wanted to know about uh, our institute, including our conference, uh, which is coming up in uh, the end of July. Every oh two goodness. years, every two years we have a conference. This time it'll be in Santa Clara, California, right nice. in the heart of uh, Silicon Valley. So late July, because I got a birthday in late July, so you know, maybe I can uh, beg for some money. So, I can. <laughs> so among the speakers, not only will I be a speaker, but Rupert Sheldrake. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And, and Deepak Chopra will be a speaker, too. Wow. Oh yeah, and, ma and many others. So you got friends, man, that I would just give my right arm just to meet. You know? <laughs> are, are you doing anything with the free found that we talk, talked about this before the show, the Edgar Mitchell 
Oh, I believe he founded the Noetic Institute. He did, yes, yeah, almost fifty years ago. So I'm I'm a scientific scientific advisor for the Free Free Foundation. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Dr. Edgar Mitchell uh, Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters, uh, which, you know, I've been very passionate about. But they do talk an awful lot about consciousness and, and its role, potentially at least, as either an energy form or like a subwave kind of, um, or a force, I should say, not energy form, but a force um, that could, you know, that... I think hopefully our physics will catch up to actually discovering. Yeah, I, I don't think it's actually a force at all. You think it might be an energy form? No, I think it is a primordial uh, muchness, as wow. they say. It is simply a, a background state of the universe that is a given. Didn't wow. come from anywhere, it just is. It just and has been there all along. Yeah. It's been there all along, and it's not physical, and it's not in space or time. It's before physical and before space and time it's wow. prior to all of that wow so and, and we're made up of that stuff in fact everything physical is made up of this consciousness in the same way that uh a uh you take a piece of bread and if you go down into it deep enough it's made up of electrons and protons and that sort of thing right well so consciousness gives rise to the physical world that that's wow. what the esoteric traditions tell us Interesting. You know, and that's kind of in alignment with some of the uh, theorists that uh, a singularity of sorts says, Tim, even without the microphone, it's quantum entanglement. He's using that to real yeah. magic, really, to, to, to say that. Yeah. Uh, boy, I, I, you know, and, and some of the people we've talked to about it would say that in the same way, but they're, they're trying to see if they can at least find some sort of more they're looking, this formulaic is, way of putting it. You know, yeah, so. they're putting a structure on it. And so <clears> the, the book that I'm thinking of writing is would describe how you can go from something that is non-physical and before space-time mm -hmm. into, how does it emerge from that yeah. into the yeah. world at large? Try and, putting that in the standard model, suckers. Well, <laughs> it, as it turns out, that there are people working on this very problem. Right. And it's usually cast in terms of the universe built out of information. So you have an informational model of reality, not a physical one. And so that's that's like the leading edge of physics and mathematics now. And the the question is, how do you translate that in a way so that the average person can understand it without knowing things like set theory and gauge theory, right. which are abstract mathematics? Uh, speaking of abstract, I got an abstract question kind of along the same lines. Do you think there's ever a situation in, in your research someday where you come across the... Um, where the answer is infinity, and you would accept it? Or would you automatically consider infinity uh, a, a null equation? Uh, no, we, we like infinities. I like you, man. God, I like you, see? Yeah. <laughs> Not only, I mean, there's more than one infinity. There are, there are an infinite number of infinities. Yes, there is. Yeah. Yeah, could be an infinite number of universes. Do you buy into either a multiple universe or a parallel universe kind of theory, either of those? Well, do I buy into the theory? Uh, I acknowledge the theory. I don't accept it. Okay. Because yeah, I, I, don't have like any, I don't have any reason to accept it. I don't see any <laughs> evidence right. for it. Yeah, me neither. <clears throat> I think if I had a choice, though, I, I would say, if there could be more than one universe, I mean, we couldn't see it. The light hasn't hit us yet. You know, three billion years from now, they'll figure it out, maybe, or if they get a telescope strong enough, 
maybe. But uh, parallel universe for our friend, uh, uh, we've yeah. got a friend who says in order for a parallel universe, it would have to, uh, you know, pretty much be born right around the same time under the same manner and have the same exact things happen, where the same exact, uh, well, there had to be some things to go wrong. <laughs> because we had the matter and the antimatter and they're all canceling each other out. So something had to go wrong in order for there to be matter created in the first place and light. And then everything would have to go pretty much the exact same way. And there would have to be exact galaxies just like they are an exact planet, just like it is for as long as it's been just for somebody to be the listener instead of the talker in a conversation. And that's kind of a tall order. <laughs> kind of, Talk me out of parallel universes right there. I mean, you know, just to just to quantify the the wave of possibilities or probabilities, you know, and and quantum physics rather than you know it's not fifty fifty anymore. Uh, wow, that's a long way around that. All right, we're just about out of time. I gotta look at Timmy for that. Is that right, Tim? We're just about out of time, right? So uh, Dean Ra DeanRaden.com. And Real Magic Book, was that it? RealMagicBook.com? Yep. Yeah, check out those. You can also find all of his books on Amazon, too. We like to take people to Amazon. It's always a good thing. And, uh, yes, we will talk to him after the show to find out when he can join us again. <clears throat> uh, Dean Raden, we, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. You've, you've certainly made our lives better. And uh, <clears throat> one of these days, man, uh, Flatliners road trip that's coming. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know. Uh, Supernatural Realm here on WCET.FM every Tuesday and Thursday live from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, also, shameless uh, self promotion here. I have a show on this network too, uh, Kindness Beyond the Veil, each and every Monday uh, from 7 to 9 p.m., uh, where you can find us. Uh, I have a author, Katrina Rose, as my guest this coming Monday from 7 to 9. And then again, Supernatural Realm, 7 to 9, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and we have some great programming coming up for you next. Uh, uh, Michael Vera and Late Night in the Midlands. Uh, I think they might be playing an archive tonight, but it's always a good one. The great Michael Vera, always phenomenal. And whatever you do, please, if you can, subscribe or donate to this network. We certainly could use the help, and we would appreciate it. Uh, join us again. Thank you all for listening. We love you. Uh, take care and good night.
are listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. <laughs> 